0: Looking to add another dance podcast to your weekly rotation? Subscribe now to the Conversations on Dance podcast. Hosted by former Miami City ballet dancers Rebecca King Ferraro and Michael Sean Breeden, Conversations on Dance takes you behind the scenes of the ballet and dance worlds in chats with dancers, choreographers, educators, and more. A catalog of over 250 episodes means there is a lot to binge, with new conversations coming every week. Subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about them at conversationsondancepod.com and follow the them on social media, at Conversations on Dance. Hi, Dance Friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Amy Brandt. We are editors at Dance Media, and on the docket this week, we have a look at how to create healthy workplace environments in the dance world, which is a complicated issue that COVID has now added yet more wrinkles to. We will discuss dance's issues with body hair and why what seems like a relatively small thing is actually a very loaded thing. And we will talk about Indigenous Enterprise, which is reimagining what a Native American dance troupe can be and, and bringing that vision to New York City's Joyce Theater this week. Um, before we get to all of that, though, we wanted to flag the new episode of the Dance Edit Extra, our premium audio interview series, which is dropping this Saturday, two days from now on Apple Podcasts. We're somehow at episode six already, believe it or not. This time around, we'll hear from So You Think You Can Dance champion Gabby Diaz, who has been able to bridge that gap between the concert and commercial dance worlds. And she worked on two just like massive upcoming musical films on both Tick Tick Boom and West Side Story and had completely different experiences on the two sets, which was just fascinating to hear about. So we hope you'll tune in. You can subscribe to The Dance Edit Extra on Apple Podcasts, and you can learn a little more about the series at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. Alrighty, time to officially kick things off now with our usual dance headline
1: rundown, which is starting with some very dark news this week. Very tragic news. Um, a young dancer is among the victims in last week's deadly mass casualty event at Travis Scott's concert at the Astro World Festival in Texas. 16-year-old Brianna Rodriguez, a junior at Heights High School in Houston, was part of her school's dance team. Her family said on social media dancing was her passion, and now she's dancing her way to heaven's pearly gates. It's just very, very sad. It's incredibly
0: sad. And if you've been on social media or, or otherwise following this story. You probably heard that Scott himself has been facing a lot of criticism after the concert, um, which leads to our next news item because in the wake of all of that, Epic Games pulled Scott's dance emote, his Out West Dance emote, from its Fortnite Daily item shop. Um, and that was an emote that first appeared on Fortnite last summer and had been like periodically available, like about once a month, they would bring it back in their shop. On Sunday night, it was re-added to the shop, possibly to coincide with the concert. It's unclear. But shortly after that, the entire item shop disappeared without explanation. And then the next night, it reappeared without that emote. Epic hasn't commented on
1: any of this yet. But, ugh, big mess. Scottish Ballet has announced that it is making adjustments to its annual Nutcracker to address racial stereotypes in the ballet's second act. The decision comes after the company did an anti-racism and diversity review of its repertoire. The company will specifically be changing the Chinese and Arabian variations to remove elements of caricature in its costumes and choreography. And in another interesting twist, Drosselmeyer will also be played by either a man or a woman in alternating casts.
0: I mean shout out to final bow for yellow face as we i feel like we are just perpetually doing they've they've just been such obviously a key force in this movement and scottish ballet signed their pledge and this Mm -hmm. seems to be one of the results of that commitment but yeah i'm also very into the idea of drosselmeyer as a non-gender specific character yeah progress um here is some more happy news. Roxanne Gay, the influential author and educator, and also possibly the best person on Twitter, <laughs> has been appointed president of the board of Performance Space New York. Gay has actually been a member of the board for a year and a half and this all reflects the organization's sort of artist-centric approach. Um, it's stated that it has a goal of building a board made up of at least 50% artists instead of, you know, your usual wealthy people who may or may not be involved with the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, really excited to see how gay is going to help shape
1: performance space. Yeah, that's exciting news. Wicked is coming to the big screen and casting for the musical's two key characters have been announced. Cynthia Erivo will play Elphaba, while pop star Ariana Grande will play Glinda. Production of the film, directed by John Hsu, starts next summer, so it's going to be a while still, but still very exciting.
0: Yeah, I love when
1: people who, like, really know their way around a Broadway
0: musical get cast in these mm-hmm. musical film projects. Yes. Like, I always forget that Ariana Grande was not 13 on Broadway when she was 15, I think. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, Cynthia Erivo, I mean, is a Tony winner.
1: Yeah, I was going to say Tony is... Nominated for an Oscar, will have an EGOT at some Did point. Did she get a Grammy as well? I think I feel like she has I like think a bunch. So of- yeah,
0: yeah, totally. And I also feel like John M Chu is such a great director of dance for the camera that I'm I'm hoping his take on Wicked will emphasize choreography because mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of potential there too. Yeah. All right. So for our first discussion segment today, we've got a piece that Dance Magazine just posted about what it takes to create a healthy working environment for dancers. And this story is actually mostly a service piece. It's discussing how choreographers with limited resources can set up environments where everyone feels safe and respected and supported. But it's, I mean, it's a crucially important topic because even the largest and best funded dance environments are often not treated or thought of the way more traditional workspaces are. So how do we fix that? And then of course, COVID is now also a factor in this equation. Like how can we create COVID protocols that all performers and crew are comfortable with? I mean, Amy, you were saying that you just nodded along emphatically with this whole piece. I
1: did. I did just, you know, I freelanced for 10 years. So I worked with a lot of different choreographers, um, worked with a lot of early career directors and choreographers and yeah, some of the things that they pointed out in the article, just that dances work and, you know, because often when you're first starting out, you're you're hiring your friends, and mm-hmm. that can kind of create a casual atmosphere. But I think, you know, it is important to keep that sense of professionalism when you are hiring dancers, having a contract, or at least like a letter of agreement that spells out your rehearsal schedule, your performances and locations, the, you know, pay rates and schedules you know even if it is just to say like i will not be providing health insurance or just so that the mm-hmm. artist knows what they're getting into um, because of course resources are always an issue when you're you know, any kind yeah. of dance company it's just the establishment of
0: expectations and like ground mm-hmm. rules
1: yeah and i thought it was great that this article pointed out the the dance artists national collective or danc that they have a like a template that you can Mm -hmm. work off of if this is something you're new to but it is really important because you know i was always trying to navigate okay what check is coming in when and Mm -hmm. like how many hours of work does this you know what is my actual if you're getting a fee what does that mean in terms of the amount of time i'm putting in like what is my hourly rate basically based on this fee and does it Mm -hmm. you know make sense but also just like understanding what what the protocol is if there is an injury if the show is canceled especially in times of mm-hmm. covid you know do you get compensated or not um it, and it, it sometimes it can be very loosey goosey you know mm-hmm. I've, I've just seen and experienced some some things you know do you have enough financial backing to put on the show that you want to produce you know right. is yeah. it too yeah. ambitious for what you have in your financial coffers right now if if so then like don't risk getting in some sort of crisis where you can't pay your dancers. Um, And I really appreciated the whole section on consent, especially with Mm -hmm. nudity in dance. Um, I've seen and experienced that being treated very casually. And, you know, I I think that is something that needs to be communicated very clearly at the beginning. And if the choreographer's vision changes and they want to instill that, if they want to have nudity or very intimate choreography or whatnot in their piece, like, you still need to have a conversation with your artists. You shouldn't just expect them to be like, okay, like, okay, I'll do whatever it. you want. Um, mm-hmm. I think it still needs to be a conversation. They need to feel comfortable saying like, no, I can't do that. Or, you know, they shouldn't feel pressured to do something. They're not comfortable doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I actually, I really appreciated this article because I, I just related to it in a lot of ways based on my own experiences as as a dancer in the freelance circuit.
0: Yeah. And then now we have all these new COVID issues to think about. Like There was a a New York Times story last week about how Radio City performers were concerned about the COVID rules for the Christmas spectacular, which Mm -hmm. it sounds like requires everyone to be vaccinated, but then doesn't also require testing, which is what all the Broadway shows and some other big performing arts groups are doing, like New York City Ballet is doing that. And yeah, in those kinds of situations where the scale is larger, where you're dealing with hundreds of performers and thousands of mm-hmm. audience members, yeah, those stakes are really high. So making sure that everybody, first of all, understands what your rules are and second of all is, is on board with them, they feel safe mm-hmm. is a critical part of the process. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like
1: this is one of our recurring themes. Open communication is always the key. Yeah, I know. I have to say I was kind of surprised. I i mean, I understand that there's so many employees involved in this show. So yeah, um, but I was sort of surprised that they would still they would kind of risk a potential breakout.
0: Right? Well, yeah, when you think about the potential financial repercussions yeah. of that having to close down the show. Um, I who knows, there's so many moving parts. But In the show notes, we've linked both the Dance Magazine piece, which has, as Amy mentioned, a ton of helpful advice on this subject, and then also the New York Times piece about what's going on at Radio City, so you can check those out. Okay, our next discussion segment today is about body hair. And it is taking all of my willpower right now not to do some kind of like ridiculous hair pun right here. So you're welcome. I'm not doing it. <laughs> the Guardian published a story last week about dance's problem with body hair, because the assumption right now, if you're a dancer in the vast majority of professional dance settings, is that your body will basically be hairless. And often that goes for both women and men. And it, like it seems like a relatively minor thing. It's just hair, but the story has kind of exploded in the dance world this week, because actually, there are pretty direct connections between dance's issue with hair, and its issues with sexism and racism
1: and the wider like policing of bodies. I personally, I kind of uh, related a lot to the ballet dancers, obviously, since I'm a former ballet dancer, but in this in the story, because a lot of them were like, it's never even occurred to me to not shave my armpits before performance. And that's, uh, you know, I, I don't see that being normalized in ballet anytime soon, personally. I
0: mean, yeah, it's ballet is probably the most conservative setting yeah. in that sense. But even there, you know, maybe we're not going to see armpit hair and pubic hair on ballet stages anytime right. soon. But how about the hair on, on dancers' heads? Because the this, this story also addresses that, too.
1: Yeah. on that, there has been some, like, I, I have to say, you know, New York City Ballet's season recently, mm-hmm. This this was kind of... Something that came up with a lot of audience members was that Tyler Angle shaved his head and he went very out proudly bald on stage. It's the first time Mm -hmm. I've ever seen him do that. And I think a lot of people were surprised at first, but it does, you know, it made you question, well, if his hairline is receding, why shouldn't he be able to shave his head as opposed to glue on a wig every night, you know?
0: yeah why is that the only so, quote unquote solution to that quote unquote problem right you know yeah well, and it also like made us think about why do we expect male ballet dancers to have like luscious heads of hair? What is it about mm. this like presentation of like male virility, full head of hair? Why does that matter why mm. it shouldn't it shouldn't matter in the yeah. end
1: and there were also you know um I'd seen several of the male dancers had grown their hair out or grown facial hair. Mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't <laughs> a total consistent look on stage. So mm-hmm. it's just sort of an, it just was, made me curious as to the conversations that were having, that were being had within the company about that. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in Chacon, um, you know, the first movement of Chacon, uh, the, the women all wear their hair very long and, uh, India Bradley and Savannah Durham, two black women in the company, uh, wore their hair natural mm-hmm. and, That was another thing I was wondering about. Like in previous years, would they have felt the need to get extensions or to straighten Mm -hmm. their hair or or to alter their hair in any other way? That was very encouraging to see on stage. I think.
0: Yeah, there was some of that in Michaela DePrince's cover story in Point too, Mm -hmm. talking about how she's at Boston Ballet now. She's wearing her hair in braids, Mm -hmm. and that's totally okay. Whereas in previous times, that was not an acceptable "quote unquote." heavy quotation
1: marks acceptable hairstyle i myself wore hair extensions in chaconne when i performed it (laughs) because my hair and i wasn't told to it's just i Uh put it upon myself because my hair was shorter and i thought oh well i'm not gonna you know look right so i went to some wig store and bought all these clip-in hair extensions and my gosh you know wore them on stage and was just like praying one of them wouldn't fall out please don't fall out. yeah (laughs) and then you have to do this quick costume change and put your hair up in a bun it was a mess yeah. But-
0: it's, it's funny too, yeah, how many of these expectations are internalized, mm-hmm. like pressures that dancers then put upon themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, and the story acknowledges this, that like, first of all, when we're talking about the homogeneity of bodies on stage, like, yeah, body hair is not the biggest issue here. Um, but I think the issue is that body hair should be a personal choice. It shouldn't be a top-down edict, like you must mm-hmm. anything. And that's what ties into the idea that you know, in a lot of the concert dance world, especially the ballet-oriented part of that world, you're taught that you don't really have agency over your own body. You're told how you should look and what you should do and wear down to the most minute detail, including your body hair. And then a lot, I think also, a lot of societies' like, ew, gross feelings about body hair are gendered. Nobody, very few people care about men's armpit hair or leg hair, but the idea of a ballerina specifically mm-hmm. with armpit hair – the fact that all of us are like, well, that could never happen. <laughs> that's 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 we gotta we gotta start at least sort of beginning to break down that that idea. So yeah, it's actually a really complicated thing to unpack. And Lindsay Winship's story in The Guardian does a good job looking at various angles of it. So yeah. we've linked that in the show notes. Finally, today we'd like to talk about Indigenous Enterprise, which is the Native American dance troupe that's performing in New York City this week. And uh, before we do, just full disclosure, neither Amy nor I are Native American dance experts. And though we're both planning to see the company perform this week, we have not yet seen them live. But we did see them on World of Dance last year when they became the first Native American group to appear on the show. And then we also did see their music video Stand and Rock from a few years ago, which they made with Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas to support the halting of the Dakota Access pipeline. So last week, the New York Times published a story talking with these young members of the group about how Indigenous enterprise is both educating audiences about Native traditions and then also incorporating some of the hip hop influences that they grew up with into those Native traditions.
1: I'm really uh, excited to see this group at the Joyce. I'm hoping to see it this weekend. And I I found the article really interesting. It really kind of gave you a nice broad overview of how the company developed, first of all, and um, how most of the dancers started most of these traditions they learned as children at powwows. And I love how they talk about one of the women in the company, how she traveled to these powwows every weekend and competing and developing quite a reputation for herself.
0: Yeah. What I liked about this piece is that it highlighted the fact that they're creating Art that feels truest to who they are as people, like all of their various mm-hmm. facets as people. So they grew up, as you said, attending powwows, studying traditional Native dances. They also grew up going to Coachella and listening to hip-hop music. Yeah. And you see all of those influences in their yeah. performances yeah. connecting to all those different aspects of their own identities. And like it seems like that kind of approach is, is just what comes out of these dancers naturally. But it ends up being an especially powerful kind of... Native American representation, um, and an especially powerful way to educate people who maybe don't know much about Native American dance, but they know hip hop, and that's a point of connection for them. Mm-hmm. They're presenting these dance forms, not just as forms rooted in history, but as forms connected to and relevant in the immediate present. Um, not that there's anything wrong with historically oriented dance performance, I should clarify, that's not what I mean. But I liked Taboo's quote about that in the story, saying... They are erasing misconceptions of what a Native person is today, but it's not talking down to you or at you. No, it's like, why don't you rock with us and let's learn together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I thought that sort of summed it up nicely. Yeah. Um, mostly we're, we're excited to see them in person with the Joyce this week. And in the meantime, please do go take a look at the New York Times piece. There was also a Dance Magazine piece about their run on World of Dance that we've linked in the mm-hmm. show notes as well. Um, we hope you can check it out. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. See you later, everybody. Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.